Welcome to the kickoff speaker meeting of WCNA 31. I'm a headache named Chuck. This is overwhelming and amazing. Um, I just, uh, I know it says Charles in the program, but please, when we get a chance to meet and hug and talk later, please call me Chuck. If you call me Charles, I won't know who you're talking to. I'm from Poe County, Florida, and I'm not that formal. Uh, I'm from the Heartland area of the Florida region. The name of my home group is Show Me, Don't Tell Me. Um, yeah. And can everybody hear me? Everybody hear me? I got this thing about being heard, I'm, and I can't see any of y'all, so that's good because if I if I knew how many people were in the audience, I'd probably be terrified right now. Um, I always got one question I like to ask though whenever I get up and share in a Narcotics Anonymous meeting like this, and I just like to ask: Is Narcotics Anonymous in the house tonight? Okay, I counted the voices. <laughs> um, I know I'm really excited to be here. I came over yesterday on a very, very long, it seemed like that plane ride was longer than my active addiction. Uh, but it was really neat. God arranged it so that the second leg of our trip, we we hubbed in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, and we got on a plane in Dallas-Fort Worth, and everybody on that plane was an addict. I swear to God. <laughs> and by the time we got off the plane, everybody who wasn't an addict wanted to be one. Because <laughs> addicts know how to have a good time, even at 40,000 feet, you know. But I knew everybody was an addict because of all the gold and the tattoos, man. We had enough gold to start a pawn shop and enough ink to run a newspaper. But you know, I was telling Joanna, I felt safe aboard that plane. You know? Like the first flight from Orlando to Dallas, it was all strangers, you know? and, you know, they get up to go to the bathroom and they don't want to make eye contact and they look directly ahead of them, you know. Addicts, addicts be working the aisle, man. Yeah. Hey, man, what's going on? Where's your home group? How long have you been cleaning, man? What's going on? Hey, hey, hey. And we started out sitting in the seats that we were assigned, and by the end of the flight, I, you know, we were all mixed up. The, the crew, <laughs> they wanted to be addicts, too, you know. Uh, before I get started, I want to do a little housekeeping. I want to thank the committee. Thank you. Anybody who has done anything for this convention, thank you so much. And I want to thank you guys for showing your commitment to Narcotics Anonymous by being here. Um, it's a great honor and a little frightening, a little overwhelming to be here, but I know that I don't stand up here alone tonight. I'm standing up here with the love and support 
of everybody in my home group, of everybody in my area, of everybody in my region, of everybody in this room, of everybody who's ever sat in a circle of Narcotics Anonymous and joined in a moment of silence. I'm joined by my predecessors, and I'm joined by those who will follow after in spirit, you see, because this is not something that we do alone. I may be the one up here talking, but this is a we thing. I can't take credit for anything. I'm sitting up here remembering that moment of desperation. If there's, if there's two days an addict will never forget, that's the last day using and the first day clean. You know? And I can remember being on the floor of a locked bathroom because the paranoia of my disease had told me that if I left that room, I would die. The IBI would come take me away. You know the IBI, the Invisible Bureau of Investigation? (laughs) I still think they're after me sometimes. Uh, Of course, I work for the Postal Service, but... But I can remember reaching out to a God that I thought hated me and had abandoned me and had damned me to hell. And crying out, you know, God, if you don't help me, either chill me and get it over with or help me. You see. And to be standing here, 27 years later, surrounded. (laughs) Surrounded by all of you guys. Man, what a response. And God and Narcotics Anonymous and you have been so much a part of that. So when I get up here and talk, I don't like to talk about we. I mean, I don't like to talk about me. I like to talk about we. Because that's what my story is, is the story of we. And I brought part of the we, our literature, the senior citizens edition of the work, Alan Why. Because I have a lot of surgery on my eyes and I can't read normal-sized print. But that's okay. To be a senior citizen, you got to be alive and breathing. You know? uh, I keep telling my friends that one of these days our fellowship's going to grow and get, keep getting older. We're going to start doing H&I meetings in convalescent homes. You know? <laughs> I'd like to welcome you to the Take Your Teeth Out group of Narcotics Homes. We have no dues or fees, but we have Metamucil <laughs> and Venture <laughs> I'm already there. <laughs> um, in order to quiet my mind and to give recognition um, to God as I understand Him, and to allow you to do the, thing, the same thing and to invite Him in the process, I'd like to have a moment of silence and ask you to join me. And I'd like to have a moment of silence remembering our predecessors who spent their moments of silence praying us up into these rooms. And also for our brothers and sisters in Louisiana, Mississippi, and all the other places affected by this hurricane. And we'll have that moment of silence now, please. While you're having that moment of silence with your eyes still closed, I want you to remember in your own life that last moment of desperation, the pain, the despair, the loneliness, the thinking that you were so broken that even God couldn't fix you, the wanting to die because I didn't know how to live, the thinking that I was so unlovable that nobody can love me. 
Now I want you to open your eyes and look around you. Isn't God good? I'm really overwhelmed to be here. I think I've said that three times. That means I'm really overwhelmed to be here. Uh, they called me in February and asked me if I would do this, and I've been living with the committee ever since. I'm going to be a real happy guy in about 45 minutes, because they told me I had about 45 to 50 minutes to talk, and I said, man, I'm from the South. It takes me 45 or 50 minutes to tell you who I am. Okay. And I was kind of worried about the language barrier because, you know, being from the South, there are people in my own country who do not know what I'm saying sometimes. Sometimes I say stuff and I don't know what I mean, you know. Um, I was even asking, we had a meeting before this meeting for all of the speakers, and I was really overwhelmed that there were people there from Japan, there were people there from Argentina, there were people from Italy, there were people from R Russia. Um, wow. You know, international. And this little podunk, crazy redneck gets to be part of this whole celebration. I know that some of you people out there are going to say about halfway through this, I wonder what swamp they got this crazy hillbilly out of. Wait till I say something you identify with. What are you going to thank then? You see. <laughs> but my sponsor told me not to worry about the language barrier or the communication because the language of Narcotics Anonymous and the message of Narcotics Anonymous is the language of love and the message of the heart. And if I come from the heart and if I'm honest, addicts will hear me in the heart and God will translate, you see. Because hugs, love, and smiles are the same in every language, you know. Um, I always, thank you. I always say that I'm an addict and then my name is Chuck. Because it's my way, I, I heard another person do it, doing it a long time ago, so I stole it. And anything you hear tonight that you want, take it, it's yours, because chances are I got it from somebody else. It's kind of like community property. Uh, but I, I heard him identify as an addict and then give his name, and so I started doing it because I liked it, because it's my way of putting the principles in Narcotics Anonymous before the personalities that, that divide us up and identify us as individuals. It's also my way of taking the focus off the messenger and putting on the message of Narcotics Anonymous. And the message of Narcotics Anonymous is very simply this, um, for anybody that may be new or for those who just want to be reminded, that an addict, any addict, any addict, can stop using drugs, lose the desire to use, and find a new way to live. Our message is hope and the promise of freedom from addiction. Now, I like to talk about addiction because it wasn't until I came into Narcotics Anonymous that I was in NA for a while before I realized that my addiction and my recovery had very little to do with the use of drugs. Now, that's the bottom line. If anybody ever tells you that this is a don't use dope program, you better run away from them. That's the bottom line. But there's so much more that I tell you when I'm an addict. I was trying to... These lights are really hot. I feel, <laughs> I feel like turning to the right and then back to the left. You know? uh, <laughs> step forward. No. Uh, 
there's a lot I say when I'm an addict. You know, I was thinking of trying of what I had to leave out because they said 45 to 50 minutes. And they mean 45 to 50 minutes. I said, well, I guess I just better leave out my life, you know, and talk about recovery. Uh, and I really don't have to tell you a whole lot about my life. You, you know my life. You know the circumstances that led me here. You know the horror of my life. You lived the horror of my life in different places with different people. And I tell you everything I need to tell you about myself when I tell you I'm an addict. You see? It's all wrapped up in that little word. I tell you that I have a disease that's identified by but not limited to the use of narcotics. You see? I tell you that I'm an egomaniac with low self-esteem. That I judge my value on who I'm with or who I know rather than by who I am. That I hate me and want to be you. You see? When I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you that my drug of choice is more. There's no such thing as enough. What was enough yesterday is not enough today. I'm addicted to new and different. When new and different becomes old and familiar, guess what? I gotta get me some more new and different. When I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you I don't want to share anything unless it's yours. You know? Your car, your dope, your money, your woman, whatever. My greatest weapon is your trust. I tell you, I'm an addict. I tell you, my idea of friendship is to steal your stuff and then help you look for it. I tell you, I'm an addict. I tell you, I would rather prove that I don't know what I'm doing by messing stuff up than admit I don't know by asking for help. When I tell you, I'm an addict. I tell you, I'm a master of the complicated, overwhelmed by the simple. You see, I got all the answers, but no solutions. Matter of fact, my solution to a problem is usually worse than the problem. When I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you that what I think is a resentment is usually just identification. You know, the people that make me the maddest are the ones that remind me of myself. You know. When I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you I'm an emotional dyslexic. I say what I don't mean, and mean what I don't say, I'll show you by killing me. I make something out of nothing and something out of nothing. So, when I tell you I'm an addict, <laughs> I tell you I will rationalize and justify in myself behavior that I will condemn in you. That I have diplomatic immunity from the rules and the laws that govern mankind. You know, the words handicap parking. Take only as directed. Turn your cell phones and pagers off, please. Do not apply to me. And what I found out on the flight was, please sit down and buckle your seatbelt, you know. The plane is landing. Addicts are in the aisles taking pictures, you know. <laughs> One more group shot. <laughs> when I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you I'm terminally unique. I'm not like anybody in the world, except for all y'all. When I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you that I can't take anybody's word for anything. i got to learn everything the hard way. Pain is my greatest teacher. I gotta touch the paint to see if it's wet. I gotta touch the stove to see if it's hot. And this is for all you people from Bubba Country like I am. I gotta pee on the barbed wire fence to see if it's really electric, like the sign says. You see. And then want you to feel sorry for me when I find out that it is. I'm a victim by choice. 
When I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you I have a disease that talks to me in my own voice. When I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you that alone I'm in dangerous company. When I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you that sometimes I think the price is the price. That I've watched all my yes become my agains. That I've bought drugs and some dope holes where angels wouldn't go, but the most dangerous neighborhood I have ever walked through in my life is the one between my ears. When I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you I'm not finished with anything until I'm done. You see, and that's usually well past the point where I've had enough, and you probably have too. You see. Um, and I'm not just talking about drugs. You see, any of y'all ever sat at the dinner table past the point you were full, but there was still food on the table? You see, addicts don't quit eating when they're full. Addicts quit eating when the food's gone. You know? uh, Anybody ever stay in a relationship past the point where you had enough? But that person that you were with hadn't done that thing you could use as an excuse to break up and it'd be all their fault, you know? Yeah, I'm in a room full of addicts, you know? Um, when I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you I've never met another addict that was a stranger. That I know you, and you know me. No matter what country we may be from, no matter what language we may speak, no matter what our experiences, we have similarities that connect us. We have a connection between us that we can meet for the first time and in five minutes it's like we're family. We have a way of, of seeing each other, of feeling each other. Because addicts, addicts don't hear what other addicts say. Addicts feel what other addicts say. It says in our basic text that we greet each other. Um, we greet each other with the greeting reserved for uh, survivors of the same shared nearly fatal catastrophe. It's on a page I, I should look it up instead of trying to do it from memory. Let's see. We greet each other with the recognition reserved for survivors of the same nearly fatal catastrophe. Um, and that's the way it was on that airplane. You know, we didn't have to tell each other about ourselves. You know, hey, we're an addict. That was enough. We had on the jewelry. We were going to the same convention. That was it, man. That was it. That's, that's all you have to know. Um, I have to tell you a little bit about myself so that you'll know the miracle. I don't want to dwell in my life because my life is really not that much. Uh, I, I'm kind of like the opie of Narcotics Anonymous. I grew up in such middle class. I mean, my mom and dad were like, you know, Ward and June Cleaver, you know, and I was like, leave it to Beaver. Nothing about my life would have told an onlooker that I would ever end up in Narcotics Anonymous because on the outside, everything looked wonderful, you see. Um, but I was an adopted child. I was an adopted child and grew up with a real, I was an adopted child whose name had been changed, and I still had a relationship with my biological mother. So I grew up with a really confused, dis detached, disconnected um, view. I had no sense of myself. I lived in a world of fantasy, a world of make-believe, a world of false reality. And I would only come out when I had to, when I needed to do what I needed to do to get somebody else's approval so they wouldn't throw me away again. Because I felt rejected. I felt thrown away. I felt not good enough. You see, when I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you I spent my whole life accusing people of thinking they were better than me because the sad reality was I believed I was less. Um, 
had a normal life, made good grades, was a good athlete. I, I wanted to be a minister. I wanted to be a preacher. I found solace in religion because I used to go to this camp every year, and the, the preachers there were able to touch me with their words, and they made me, you know, and I'm not trying to turn this meeting into Sunday school, but in order to understand me, you have to understand my background. I hope I didn't hurt anybody there. Uh, an interpreter just fell over. Uh, <laughs> I'm dangerous. You know, Joanna has to walk around with me to keep me from doing stuff. She's, she's my guide, you know. Uh, she's very patient. But my parents didn't want me to be a preacher, especially my mother, because she had a real thing with organized religion. So I said, okay, I'll go off to school and become a psychologist. And I did. I went off to a major university to study psychology um, because I figured I could still help people. What I really wanted in my life was to ease people's suffering and to make a difference because I knew what it was like to suffer. I knew what it was like when somebody came along and made me feel better about myself. And I wanted to do that. So I went off to college, and this was the Woodstock generation, you know. Um, Vietnam War, and when my friends from school went into drugs, they thought because I was so straight, it would be a hoot to get me stoned. You know, kind of like, let's hold the cat upside down, blow marijuana in its face and drop it and see if it lands on its feet. You know. Some of y'all laugh, you did that, you know. Thank goodness for Narcotics Anonymous, the household pets of the world are safe today. But they got me high, and the very first time I got high, I didn't get high on pot, I didn't get high on alcohol, and alcohol is a drug. I'm not multi-polycross or dual addicted up here. I'm just, I'm an addict and an addict, you know. Um, I'm an addict and an addict and a postal worker if you really want to get scary. Uh, I got all kind of things going on up here. But a year later, they were buying their stuff for me. Two years later, I was out of school. You know, and the year I started using, three of our greatest stars, Jimi Hendrix, Janice Joplin, and Jim Morrison, all died of drug overdoses. And I told myself this was the denial. They died because they were wealthy and they could afford better drugs. You know. They say that addiction is a smoldering death wish. Mine was Haley's Comet. A year after I used for the first time, I don't know if I was born an addict, but an addict was born. A year after I used, they were buying their stuff from me. Two years later, I was out of school. Seven years later, I was lying on the floor of that locked bathroom asking God to kill me or help me. Seven years. That's all I used. Seven years. But, you know, it's kind of like the difference between natural orange juice and concentrate. My, I was I was addict concentrate. I packed so much using into those seven years and I nearly died. I was one of those people whom they say jails, institutions, and death. Death was going to be my bottom. You see, death was going to be my bottom because something triggered in me the first time I got high. I never felt that good, and I spent the rest of my life chasing after that cherry high that I was never going to feel again, you know, and losing everything and almost my life. Um, somehow I got a job in the Postal Service when I came home, and in the Postal Service my using stood out like a sore thumb because these were career people. And I had this car. I was always getting in trouble with this car. I was always losing my car. 
I'd walk out and my car wouldn't be in the garage. And you know you have to make those phone calls. Hey, man, did you see me last night? Where was I? Is my car open? I did this about a dozen times in about a two-year period. And that's the difference between normal people and addicts. Normal people get high, lose their car, they quit getting high. Addict get high, lose his car, he quits driving. You know? Simple solution, you know. Um, and God took care of it for me. I, I, I can remember getting in a lot of trouble. I drove my car into a lake. Drove my car into a lake, and everybody, it was a lake down from my mom and dad's house, and everybody in my neighborhood that had known me since I was six was standing on the shoreline. And I was pissed off because I was embarrassed because it was all about me. When I tell you I'm an addict, I tell you it's always about me. You see? I didn't think of my mom, my dad, my sisters who had to live in that neighborhood. It was always about me. And finally, God, I had so many close calls with that car. God finally took care of it. I walked outside one day, and my car had a dead battery because I'd left the lights on. And I didn't have enough time to jump start it and drive it around the block. And I said, well, I'll fix it when I get home today from work. Well, I got home. I didn't want to wait three hours because my neighbor had the jumper cables, and he didn't get home until six. So I said, well, I'll get high today, and I'll fix my car tomorrow. My car sat in my garage for two years. My car sat in my garage. I never drove that car again, ever. You know, um, I sold it to get my first recovery car. Needless to say, you know, my world shrank and isolation became a way of life. Uh, became suicidal. They started putting me in, in hospitals for the really, really nervous. You know, and the counselors there—they weren't addicts. They were dropouts from the Peace Corps, and they wanted to teach the world to sing, and they wanted to start with me. But they didn't know what it was like to be me. You see, they, they had a sympathetic ear, but not an empathetic ear. You know the difference, you know? Sympathy hears the story and says, oh, I feel so bad for you. Empathy hears the story and goes, man, I've been right there and I know how to get out. This way. They had a sympathetic ear. So they kept putting me in outpatient and giving me all the prescription drugs I could handle. Um, they gave me permission to use. Finally, they put me in fifth floor under a suicide watch, and the counselor they assigned to me was somebody who used with me, and he figured it'd be easier to let me out to get a new connection, and they let me out with enough pills to kill the front row, and three days later, I was flatlined in the Lake Wells emergency room, um, almost died. I remember waking up in ICU with my mother sitting at my foot of my bed, and what I want to say for y'all to remember, she was writing on a yellow legal pad, and what she was writing, having no experience with 12-step fellowship or anything, she was writing this phrase that kept going through her head over and over. And the phrase was, I am so much, you are so much, but together we are so much more. And what she was writing was the formula for the spiritual principle of we that gives our fellowship so much power. Um, needless to say, they didn't let me write out. They put me in a psych ward again. But the doctor explained to me, as I was lying there flat with all these tubes and stuff over me, he said, you know, when you came in here, there was nothing we could do for you. Nothing. We knew we were going to lose you. And just when we thought we were going to have to call you, you know, time of death, you sat straight up and started pulling the tube out of your throat, the, the IVs out of your arm, the little EKG stuff, and fighting with the police. And we knew that maybe you had a chance and we were able to stabilize you and put you in ICU. 
the first night you were there, we didn't know if you were going to live. And after that, we didn't know if you were going to be all right. We didn't know how much brain damage you had incurred. You see. And armed with that information, I went back out into the streets and used for 18 more months until I wound up on the floor of that bathroom asking God to either help me or kill me because I was done. I was done. It was over. Um, if I thought that using one more time would have killed me, I would have used one more time. But I had this sinking feeling that my life was going to do that way. You know, they say insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results. I was doing the same thing knowing what was going to happen because I had gotten to a place called hopelessness. Hopelessness and despair. Um, in a moment of clarity, I called the Postal Service and said, I need help. They said, thank God. Welcome to the real world. We've been waiting for this phone call for about three years. And they said, stay there. We'll call you. They called me that afternoon and said, come up to the post office. We've got a guy we want you to talk to. I came up to the post office and there was a guy. And the postmaster gave us his office. He said, you know, come on in, sit down. And that was a big deal. The postmaster would leave and leave you in his office because he knew we wouldn't be disturbed. It was that important to him. The guy says, my name is Bill. I want to tell you a little bit about myself. For 45 minutes, he told me about himself. He never said one thing to me. He never asked me one question about my life. And he said at the end of the 45 minutes, he said, now that I've told you about myself, is there anything you can identify with? And I said, yeah, all of it. He took away my shame, the power of one addict sharing honestly to another addict. He took away my shame. He took away my shame and allowed me to step through the door to freedom. Um, we decided that being a sour work for the post office, they had to monitor my behavior. You know, if you admit that you have a drug problem, you enter into their program. What I didn't realize was that it was the first step towards releasing me from the service, you know, because it was a union job. But if you have a drug problem, they can release you. Um, so we decided I would go to treatment. And you know about treatment. That's the place where you go to spend thousands of dollars to find out that meetings are free. You know? <laughs> but we went to treatment, and two miracles happened while I was in treatment. The first miracle, I'm sitting in treatment. You know, they're taking your blood pressure and doing all that stuff that they do when they admit you. And I'm reading the steps on the wall, you know. Admitted that I was powerless over my addiction, my life had become unmanageable. I had a car sitting in the garage with a dead battery, you know, driven it into a lake. All of the things that I had done, my apartment was a flop house. I, I had the mattress pulled out in the middle of the living room floor, and the windows blacked out, and mountains of garbage and, and unwashed dishes and dirty clothes. And my mom used to call me every morning to make sure that I would get up and get to work on time, you know. Um, God bless her. Yeah, my life was unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than myself, the hope. Yeah, when I identified this Bill's story of his addiction, I found hope in the story of his recovery. Yeah, I, I had hope. Got to the third step, made a decision to turn my life and will over to the power of God. Now, this guy's been trying to kill me for seven years, you know. But 
I figured I had a better chance. It was kind of like last year when I was about to lose my vision. Uh, two years ago, we had some real complicated surgeries on my eyes, about ten procedures to save my sight. Uh, and the doctor was explaining to me what he was going to have to do, and I said, what is the success rate? And he said, about 90%. I went, only 90%? And he says, well, let's put it this way. You've got a 100% chance of going blind if we don't operate. That's what the same kind of odds I had with God. I figure I had better odds with a God that might send me to hell than with a disease that had already taken me there and dropped me off. I got down on my knees in my room that night, and I prayed. I said, God, you know, I know you exist, because a lot of people spend a lot of time talking about you. But I don't really know you. I know Abraham Lincoln existed, but I never met him, you know. And the next words that came out of my mouth were a miracle. You know, the honest, most honest thing I had ever said in my life up to that point, I'm not even going to make you any deals, because I know I won't keep them. But if you don't help me, I'm going to die. You see, um, November 1st, 1977, uh, from November the 1st, 1977 until this moment, I've never had to use again, you see. Um, I had one of those road to Damascus spiritual experiences where you encounter a, a higher being face to face. I used to share about it all the time, but then I heard that Jimmy Kennan had had a similar experience, and I quit sharing about it because I didn't want people to think I was trying to put myself you know, in the same ballpark with him. And an old-timer came up to me one day and said, you know, Chuck, if that's the way it happened, you need to share it. Because there might be somebody in the room who's had a similar experience and their disease is trying to tell them it wasn't real. You see, if you've had one of those experiences and you need to talk to somebody about it, come talk to me, man. Uh, <laughs> I can identify. Um, the second miracle was that my first sponsor came walking into a meeting, and he was the guy that I delivered mail to. You know, he knew me. He was the editor of our hometown newspaper. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, I'm sliding over the table because I can see the headlines, you know, mailman in rehab. Because it was all about me, you know. And it suddenly dawned on me that the only people that would be there was people there for a meeting, you know. So I sat up and I looked at him, you know, okay, what are you doing here, you know. After the meeting, he came over and said, you already know my name. Here's my phone number if there's anything I can do for you. Give me a call. He became my first sponsor. Um, and he was an old cowboy. And he used to tell me two things he always used to tell me. Actually, three. Only two of them I can repeat in public. Uh, <laughs> no, he was an old cowboy. And his family used to sell beef to the Army during World War I and II. And he said, you know, Chuck, before you can brand a steer, you've got to rope a steer. And before you can rope it, you've got to cut it from the herd. Don't get cut from the herd. You see? Um, and what he meant was... It didn't necessarily mean go along with the crowd. What he meant was don't get cut from the process, meetings, steps, sponsorship, service. If your ass falls off, pick it up and put it in a bag and bring it back. Don't leave, no matter what. If there's anyone new here, and I would, I would have said, I would have asked for the newcomers to stand up so we can see you, but it's so dark in here. If there is anyone new here tonight, I'm not going to tell you to keep coming back. I'm going to tell you to stay, you know, stay, because if you've sat in this room, if you've sat in a meeting long enough or in a circle long enough and you've pressed hearts with enough addicts, man, we have already put a cut on your eye. There is no way 
that you will ever be able to use again. Remember that movie, The Sixth Sense, about that little boy? I see dead people. No. Well, you use, and you're going to see addict people, you know, for the rest of your life. <laughs> Keep coming back. Worse if you work it. If you don't pick up, you won't get high. <laughs> Mama, make them stop. <laughs> Second thing he told me was about the difference between involvement and commitment. You know, the difference between involvement and commitment. Um, in a bacon and egg breakfast, the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. You see. <laughs> I don't want commitment to sound fatal now. <laughs> but what he was trying to say was that the chicken gave only a small part of itself, something that wouldn't be missed and something that could be easily replaced. But the pig gave everything it had. Um, when I was in my active addiction, I was a pig in my addiction. What makes me think I can come up and be a chicken when it comes to service and the steps and, and being in Narcotics Anonymous? Okay. Now, because that was in 1977, from 1977 until Narcotics Anonymous came to Central Florida in 1983-84, I was in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I have the greatest amount of respect for that fellowship, and I show my appreciation by not attending their meetings anymore. But you will never catch me bad-mouthing anybody who's trying to save anybody's life. I respect my predecessors, but when N.A. came to Central Florida, I heard the message of N.A. There was no way I could identify as anything other than an addict ever, ever, ever again. It sticks in my throat. Um, And in the beginning, I couldn't get anybody to sponsor me because when I left the other fellowship and started in N.A., I couldn't get anybody to sponsor me because I had eight years clean in a fellowship that was a year old. You know, So I got my recovery off speaker tapes that people brought back from conventions like this. This is overwhelming to me that I'm speaking and it's being recorded. Um, but I got my recovery off of speaker tapes. The first speaker tape I ever heard was by a guy by the name of Greg Pierce. Uh, and he's dead, so I can say his name, Greg P. The second speaker of tape was Blaze, um, Jimmy Kinnon, uh, Pepe, Acuna, um, Tony D, Carmelita, uh, Doreen, um, Mona, uh, Chuck Skinner, Dito, you name it. I, I inhaled speaker tapes. I mean, they were the words of life to a little old country boy driving down blacktop roads in a pickup truck looking for a meeting looking for a better way of life. These people brought the message to me, and they didn't know me from Moody's Goose or Adam, you know. But they carried the message to me. Uh, One of the greatest moments in my life, some of the greatest moments, is when I got to meet these people. I got to meet Greg Pierce, and I got to thank him and say, you know, thank you because you don't know me, but you rode in my pickup truck with me for a thousand miles. Eight months later, he passed away. You see. 
And I, I felt a great sense of loss. I know that Greg is probably looking at me and laughing now. He said, how does it feel, country boy? Uh, <laughs> because I was in such awe of him. He had to grab me around the neck and say, you know, country boy, you need to chill out. Come to dinner with me. Uh, and, and he taught me a lesson in that, too. He taught me that no matter who I thought I was or who I thought I wasn't or how inadequate I felt that I was, I was good enough to sit at his table. And that's the message of Narcotics Anonymous. I don't care who you are or who you think you're not, you're good enough to sit at the table. And one of the things I always like to do is I like to quit speaking to the audience, and I want to speak to the person who's listening to this tape right now. The brother or sister who's in their car on their way to a meeting or just sitting in your house listening to this tape. Somebody gave you this tape. You may have been in the program for a while. You may be new. When I made this tape, when this tape was made, uh, it was at the 31st World Convention of Narcotics Anonymous in Honolulu, Hawaii. And I'm in front of a crowd of people. Oh, God, there's got to be a couple, two or three thousand people, a couple thousand people, more people than a country boy can count without taking his shoes off, you know. Uh, and they all got on beautiful clothes and bright smiles and flowers around their neck and gold jewelry and cell phones and they got hopes and they got dreams and they got freedom from active addiction. And tonight, when we have that moment of silence, for the addict who still suffers or the one looking for a better way, one of the people we pray for here tonight was you. Welcome to Narcotics Anonymous. You don't ever have to go anywhere else. You don't ever have to use again. And i got to hurry up. Um, thank you for being patient. <laughs> we got started a little bit late. I was standing outside. Thank you. If you stand outside here long enough, I won't have to talk. You know, that was great. Um, in the beginning, I finally found somebody to sponsor me, Ron, um, and he's a very brave person because I've got more questions sometimes than there are answers. But that, that was before we had the step working guide, and we used those old steps, you know, that had been mimeographed and copied so many times. Mine had a thumbprint on the first page, um, and I can remember the very first question was. What do you have to give to the we of Narcotics Anonymous? But before I could answer that, I had to find out what we was, you see. And my sponsor asked me, okay, what does the word we mean to you? And being a smart aleck, I said more than one, you know. I found out that, you know, the word we means don't be a smart aleck with your sponsor if you don't want to spend the rest of your life writing on the first step, you know. Uh, but we was a lot of things, you know. By the time I got through writing about the word we, I had 105 pages on the word we. 105 pages. I couldn't wait to start on the word autonomous. You know. um, small novel. But the word we was a lot of things. The word we was all, 12, was all of the spiritual principles of our 12 steps, of our 12 traditions, of our concepts. You see, we in the first step was the truth that set me free and the honesty that keeps me free. And knowing that I never had to be alone again. I remember before I came into the NA, I felt so alone. 
You see, we means I never have to be alone. We is the hope that I, that I experience, that power greater than myself. We is the power greater than myself. Every person in this room is the visible proof of an invisible power working in the lives of addicts today. You know, Exhibit A, how can you put a price on that? You are priceless. Your, your worth cannot be measured. And the third step, we was surrendering to another way, a different way. My way wasn't working. And also that I got to have a God of my understanding instead of that punishing God of somebody else's understanding. Um, and when I first came into N.A., I was a little hurt by the fact that they were taking the Lord's Prayer out of the rooms when one of my predecessors lovingly explained to me that Narcotics Anonymous is an international fellowship encompassing many countries, many faiths, many cultures, many, you know, experiences. Um, I like to say that being in Narcotics Anonymous is better than American Express, you know. All I have to do anywhere I am is find a meeting and say, I'm an addict named Chuck, and I'm accepted in 50 states and 113 countries around the world. No dues or fees. (laughs) You remember when you say you are. There's a penalty for early withdrawal. Um, We in the fourth step was the courage to go inside, knowing I wouldn't be judged for what was there and that I didn't have to go alone that you would go with me we in the fifth step was all about relationships communication intimacy vulnerability uh, the first relationship most of us have is with a home group if you don't have a home group if by chance somebody doesn't get one get involved get the phone numbers of your home group members uh, if you don't have a sponsor get one it doesn't have to be perfect the fool can do a better job with my life up until the time I came into DNA right um, and you don't have to belong to the best home group. If you want to belong to a better home group, do everything you can to make your home group better. That's what my sponsor used to tell me. Said, you don't have to leave. Bloom where you're planted. God got me clean in Lake Wells for a reason, and it wasn't to move to Tampa. <laughs> unless I have to, unless God moves me there. Um, we in the sixth and the seventh step, we have a sponsorship. Let me go back to this. We have a sponsorship family retreat every year. The first time we met, there were 40 people. Five years later, there were 500 people in our sponsorship family retreat. Um, and my sponsorship family believes in working the steps. And, and, and we were very open. We're very intimate with each other. I have my grand sponsor and my sponsor and are both here right now. Um, so keeping me honest. So, you know, they probably debrief me when this meeting is over. Uh, <laughs> give me a, an assignment uh, in steps six and seven. In 6 and 7, I learned it about grace and mercy. And I'm not talking about the steps. You know, you can work the steps with your sponsor. I'm talking about what we meant in each of the steps. Steps 6 and 7 is about grace and mercy. You know, Narcotics Anonymous is not a place where I come get what I deserve, so I don't need to be deciding what somebody else deserves. Man. It's about we don't throw each other away. When we make mistakes, we don't throw each other away. We work through it. We love each other. We hold on to each other. And when somebody makes mistakes, we just hold them tighter, you know. Um, in A, it was about integrity. I can't blame you for my bad behavior anymore. In 9, it was about reconciliation, forgiveness, learning to forgive, learning to be forgiven, learning to forgive myself. It was about healing. I remember I had a real blowout with my biological mom and said some real hurtful, hateful things to her because I'd had a lifetime of resentment that erupted in a moment of rage because of Narcotics Anonymous and because of the steps. There was a healing in that relationship because the sisters in Narcotics Anonymous would come into meetings and they would talk and share honestly and openly about the pain of children that had been lost, 
the pain of children who had died, the pain of children who had been abandoned, the pain of children who had been taken away. You showed me your scars, and my own open wound was healed. You see, we is the healing power of another addict sharing the scars with you. Uh, in step ten, we was the vigilance. You know, back in the days when I got clean, if you didn't show up at your home group five minutes after the meeting, your home group would show up at your front door. We need, you know, one of the things we do in our home group is we challenge the, new, the newcomer. We meet him at the door. I mean, give me your phone number. I'll give you mine. If you don't call me, I'm going to call you. You know, we build this fellowship one addict at a time. Um, and vigilance is about the way we live. It's more than about talking the talk. It's about walking the walk, you know. Um, how do we act in public? How do we live our lives? Uh, how, how do we act in, 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 in our places of, of work and with our families? You know? It's about not wearing masks and not trying to convince people I'm something that I'm not or I'm not something that I am. You know? um, we in the 11th step was learning to take the focus off myself by praying and meditating with God as I understood him. You know, if I can take the focus off myself for 10 or 20 minutes with God, then I can take the focus off myself with another addict. I remember sharing at a convention one time uh, I was going to have to travel home on the day of the Super Bowl, and somebody said, don't you know you're going to miss the Super Bowl? And I said, you know something? I don't have the ability to affect that game one bit. But I might make a difference in the life of a suffering addict if I go do this service commitment. You see, I go where I can make a difference. Um, and step 12, step 12 was about giving back what we have so freely received to anyone who asks, you know. Um, I can remember, we was, to me, is about, is about without exception, without exception. Everybody who comes to the door without exception, we should treat them like they're the most important person there. In our, in the works, Helen Why, it is absolutely none of our business to decide who is ready to hear the message of recovery and who is not. Many of us have formed such a judgment about an addict's desire for recovery and have been mistaken. Multiple relapses do not necessarily signify a lack of interest in recovery, nor does the model newcomer demonstrate without a doubt a certainty of making it. It is our purpose and our privilege to share the message of recovery unconditionally with anyone expressing a desire to receive it. There was this guy named Frank. I'll tell you about Frank and close up. Frank was audio hallucinatory schizophrenic. In your life, if you stay in this fellowship long enough, God will send you that addict that tests your commitment to carrying the message. Frank was audio hallucinatory schizophrenic. If any of you have ever seen the movie A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe, you know that audio hallucinatory schizophrenic means that Frank had invisible friends. You know? And he brought them to meetings. I mean, if you were in a meeting with Frank before he sat down, you had to say, is this chair taken? <laughs> But his parents, he lived in Chicago. Got anybody here from Chicago? Okay. Chi-Town. His parents sent him from Chicago to Lake Wales to be with his uncle, who was a very spiritual man. His uncle gave him to my sponsor, who was a very spiritual man. You know who my sponsor gave him to. He said, you're going to help this guy. You're going to give him rides to meetings. You're going to work with him. You know. And back in those days, you did what your sponsor told you to do, because I honestly believe that if I refused, that man had the authority to revoke my clean time. 
But Frank was really scary. He was six foot five. He was like me, six foot five, weighed about 250 pounds, and dressed in black Harley Davidson leather. I think he wore it to sleep at night. Black T-shirt, the black leather vest, the black glasses, the bandana, the chaps, the boots, the buckle, the chain wallet, the knuckle buster rings, and drove a pinto. Addiction is about the images that we create and try to pass off as ourselves. Uh, and Frank can only say two words, yeah, and wow. You know, the lights were on and nobody was home. And Frank scared me. Frank scared me. Because I just knew they were going to find my body, my lifeless body beside the road with a heart put out, and Frank sitting cross-legged in a circle of candles reciting some devil mantra. You know. And I remember telling my sponsor, you want me to take him to a meeting in my car alone? I kept a gun in the door pocket of my truck. I took Frank to meetings for six weeks, and he was the kind of person to go in the bathroom. You'd have to go chase him because he'd get transfixed by his image in the mirror. Frank, time to go. Yeah, wow. But he left after six weeks. I was never so glad to see anybody go. Frank, goodbye, Frank. Don't write. About three years passed, three or four years passed, and I forgot all about him, you know. And I was walking into a meeting one night, and I, I'm getting my coffee, and I hear this voice, Hi, Chuck. <laughs> and I turn around, and I look at him, but I can't remember and he comes bounding up to me like this big puppy, still dressed in Harley stuff. So you remember me as Frank. <laughs> Frank, how you doing, Frank? Well, I'm doing okay. I got a sponsor. I'm reading a basic text. I'm working the steps. Uh, I had a relapse, but I'm back in the rooms. I'm down here visiting my uncle. I got two years clean, and I'm chairing the meeting tonight. Of course, all I could say was, yeah, wow. God used Frank to teach me a lesson, because Frank, his father passed away and his mother moved to Lake Wales, and Frank became the coffee maker for our home group. <laughs> the coffee was measured to the last grain. The, circuit, the circle was geometrically perfect, you know. And don't dink any of the chairs out of the line. But, oh no, you know. And Frank was real serious, you know. Frank didn't kid. He didn't know how to pull your leg. He could quote entire paragraphs of the basic character, you know. He would laugh at something if it was funny, like turn the moment of silence, you know. Uh, one of his friends would tell him a joke. Uh, but anyway, one day I was, we were putting up a meeting together, setting up a meeting. I said, oh, Frank, man, you're just such a miracle. I'm just so glad God let me witness your recovery. And every time I see you, I'm just reminded that God's still in the miracle. Yada, yada, yada. I was blowing smoke up his butt and taking credit for his recovery was what I was doing. I know none of you can identify with that. But I'm telling you. Running out of time. 
I'm blowing smoke up his butt and telling him what a miracle he is and taking credit for it. And he just looked at me and went, well, Chuck, I just kept telling myself, if you could do it, I could do it too. In my own life today, Frank's still clean, I'm still clean, and that's the message of Narcotics Anonymous. If me and Frank can do this, you can do this. If we can get clean and stay clean, you can too. If I can have 30 years in the Postal Service and a career, you can have a career. If I can have relationships, you can have relationships. There's not anything that you're going to face in this life that somebody in this room has not faced. We are the largest living, breathing library of human experience. I have a relationship with a beautiful lady today, Joanna, whom I love very much, uh, who's my partner in this journey of recovery. And I thought I was a failure to God because I hadn't been a preacher, you know. I wanted to be a preacher and became an addict. Actually, I wanted to be a preacher, studied to be a psychologist and became an addict. And I found of the three, the addict is the most important because preachers will try and pray you out of hell. Psychologists will try to talk to you and coming out on your own, but addicts are different. We'll walk into hell, grab you by the seat of your pants, and walk you happy ass out of hell. Okay. So that's who we are. That's who we are. It's a very beautiful reading about why addicts were chosen. We have been chosen to carry the message of hope because we have been the outcasts of mankind, and our long experience of suffering addicts has made us humbly alert to the cries of distress that come from the lonely hearts of desperate addicts everywhere. Um, I always say a poem, and thank you for being so patient. I always say a poem and then I get out of here because it's about the spiritual principle of we. There are so many more things I could say, but I can't. I'm limited by time. Um, but I'd like to talk to you guys later, hug you, whatever, hang out. Uh, it's by Rod McEwen, and it goes like this. Each of us was made by God, and some of us grew tall, while others stood out in the wind. Their branches bent and fell. Those of us who walk in light must help the ones in darkness up, for that's what life is all about, and love is all there is to love. Each of us was made by God, beautiful in his mind's eye. Those of us who turned out sound should look across our shoulders once and help the weak ones to their feet. It only takes an outstretched hand. Brothers and sisters in Narcotics Anonymous, we are the outstretched hand of Narcotics Anonymous. Only we can carry the message to the addict who still suffers. And in leaving, I want to remind you of the words that my mother said, I am so much, you are so much, but together, we, one fellowship, many friends, are so much more. Thank you for making a difference all over the world. Have a wonderful convention. Thanks for letting me share. Let's hear it one more time for Chuck. Okay, don't go anywhere. We have an important important announcement before we read just for today. Hang on. Hey, hello everyone. I'm Tom. I'm an addict. So look at the, the festival. To get there, you're going to leave the convention center. You're going to take a left and go down that street passing the Alamona Hotel. There's going to be signs along the way. Uh, there'll be the police there to help us across the streets. 
Those who don't want to walk, there's going to be some limited shuttle service from here to the festival. After the festival, there's going to be some shuttle service back here to the um, regular shuttle service back here to the convention center. The festival runs from 1.30 to 4.30, but try to get there by 2.30 because that's when everything's going to kick off. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be music, and you guys are going to have a bow. Chuck, thank you. You're great. Okay, Rhonda from Cleveland, Ohio has been asked to read just for today. I'm Rhonda and I am an addict. Just for today, tell yourself, just for today, my thoughts will be on my recovery, living and enjoying life without the use of drugs. Just for today, I will have faith in someone in NA who believes in me and wants to help me in my recovery. Just for today, I will have a program. I will try to follow it to the best of my abilities. Just for today, through NA, I will try to get a better perspective on my life. Just for today, I will be unafraid. My thoughts will be on my new association, people who are not using, who have found a new way of life. So as long as I follow that way, I have nothing to fear. Just for today. All right, we're going to make a big circle, and we're going to close this meeting with the third step prayer. We're going to squeeze it up over in the corner over there. We can do this.
Many of us have said, 